0: Good morning. Good morning. The Lord is risen. He is he is risen. risen indeed. Hallelujah. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you invite you to open up to the book of Leviticus, which is the third book in your old testament. One of the things you discover. The more that you study and read the Bible, is that the old serves as the blueprint and framework for the new. So it is, I trust, trust me, it is fitting for us to dive into the book of Leviticus so that we might understand the goodness and power and glory of Easter Sunday. So, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it is often understood rightly to be a book filled with the covenant laws for Israel. And those laws tend to tend to be able to be categorized in three ways. There are civil laws designed to govern Israel as a nation, a country. There are ceremonial laws that are designed to help us understand the reconciliation we have with God by God. And third, there are moral laws. These are laws that are universally binding on all men in all places throughout all time. So there are many occasions in our lives where we would better understand ourselves, our God, and the world around us through our study of those laws. Easter Sunday is an annual remembrance of the historical fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The grave has no hold on him, and he lives. So please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to look at just two verses. Leviticus 16, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and receive it as such. As we explore the day of atonement, The One day in a calendar year where Israel's sins would be understood to be removed from the individuals, from the people, and from their culture and community together. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 21 and 22. And Aaron, the high priest shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we're gathered here on this day in this place that we might praise you, that we might sing affectionate songs, expressing our gratitude and your worthiness. Lord, we also pray that you would make yourself known to us, that you would show us your goodness, your power, and your wisdom that we annually celebrate on a Sunday morning called Easter. Father, show us the rich glories of the atonement you secured on Good Friday and proclaimed on Sunday morning, that first Sunday, come and show yourself to us. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that will receive all that you have for us. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. Why did God allow sin and evil. Why? Is this not a central question that both Christians and non-Christians have? Why does God allow sin and evil? And there are good and long and nuanced answers, but one element of the truthful answer to why did God allow sin and evil is that he allowed it because he would remove it. He allows it because he can and will and does remove it. Sin never gets the last word. So as we... About this, we come all the way back to early Israel as a nation. And early Israel as a nation was commanded by God to celebrate Yom Kippur. You familiar with this? It's the Jewish Day of Atonement. You can read all about it in the whole chapter of Leviticus 16, but I don't think any of you want to be here through dinner. So we're going to look at just these two verses to understand one element of what God has done and is doing in people. So if we are to understand these ceremonial laws in Israel's history, we see that the key to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the key is atonement. Everything that is going on is pointing to the cost that sin has. This is the great glory of the Mosaic sacrificial system is it keeps pointing us over and over and over again through every sacrifice, through every offering that man's sin has a cost that must be paid in blood. But not just any blood. Holy blood, perfect blood. We understand this in the symbolism and typology that is found in the sacrificing of animals. You couldn't pick the runt of the litter or the one with a bum leg to offer to God. You offer to God the best of what you have, not the leftovers of what you have. You don't give him the rounded remainder You give him first and best fruits. A lamb without blemish is the right offering. So this key to Old Testament sacrifice is atonement. And one aspect, there are many, y'all, many threads. But the one we will see today and focus on is divine satisfaction atonement at its very core is moving us to understand both the need for and the accomplishment of divine satisfaction. When I asked why does God allow evil, why does he allow sin, I answered because he would remove it. There's a technical term that we call Expiation, now I know you use that word in your daily lives regularly, but for the few of us in the room who don't, expiation is an understanding that God removes the guilt of our sin at the cross. God removes the guilt of our sin by the work of the cross. That's expiation. When we come to study this and see it, we see divine satisfaction in the removal of guilt towards sinners. So God, as he sees us, sees one without blemish or stain. Why, how can he do that? He can do that in the fulfillment of vicarious substitution in death. So let's talk this through a little bit. If you were a Hebrew growing up after the time of Moses in the, in the fullness of tabernacle or temple, you will see men and boys bringing the sacrifices to the outer courtyard, And in that ceremony, we understand the blood sacrifice being offered as payment for sin. Now, many of us today feel like blood sacrifice, this whole blood-bought sin and redemption and ransom, this just feels archaic. No, worse than that. I think if we're honest, for most of us, it feels more than archaic, it feels barbaric barbaric? Have not we progressed beyond deities who require blood? No. No. Why? Because God says so. Because God says. And so there's something that we must know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in its tying to the blood sacrifice. But in that blood sacrifice, once a year, they would also offer expiation. They would show Aaron, the great high priest of Israel, laying his hands on the head of the best goat in Israel. Think about the joy you would have if they picked your goat. Right? This is the ceremony for an entire nation of people. And they bring the best goat forward. And Aaron takes all the sin of all of Israel and puts it on the head of a goat. Somebody elbow your neighbor and wake them up. Right? This is a snooze fest for us. This doesn't really mean much to us. It certainly didn't to me for a long time. But there's a precious truth that is taking place in this ceremony. Now, let's be very clear. The book of Hebrews tells us that there's no power in the blood of bulls to take away sin. God, in his overwhelming mercy, would credit the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that hasn't even come yet in time and space and apply it all the way back then, in this instrument and symbol of what's taking place. How are we to understand the significance of what Jesus has accomplished if we do not have a framework through which to understand its elements and parameters? This is really important. But in what way can Aaron... Gather up the sin of Israel and put it on the head of a a goat. Not even a bull, but like a goat. How can that happen? And the answer is not by man's doing. It's not how can it happen, it's how doesn't it happen? It doesn't happen because we did something. It doesn't happen because we wanted something. It doesn't happen because we sincerely hope in something. It happens because God is looking at the goat and seeing Jesus on the cross. It happens because it's an initial sign. And what's the function of a sign? To point you to the substance You guys ever roll in, you're excited, you're going to Disney World, and you're driving in in that 75-lane highway that you pull in on, you know what I'm talking about? And then you start seeing sign after sign after sign that's like Disney World, that way. Does anybody pull up to the first sign and go, we're here? That's ridiculous, right? That is what the goat is doing. That's what all of these ceremonies and all their intricacies and complexities, they're all screaming at us that we need a savior and that that savior can do the unimaginable for us. Gather all of our sin, the penalty that it's due, and place it on the head of a substitute not you but the substitute not your mom but the substitute not your best friend but the substitute from generation to generation to generation grandchild to grandchild to gr- he gathers it all up and vicariously puts it on the head of the goat and then and I appreciate the language here A man of readiness, we have many of those, true, a man of readiness takes the goat and marches it, I would even say parades it, before the people on the exit of the place where this is happening, right, tabernacle or temple, and they send it out to die in the wilderness, Like an escaped goat. Did you ever know where the phrase scapegoat comes from? What is a scapegoat? It's the one who is declared guilty regardless of his guilt. He's a scapegoat. Well, we don't use scape unless it's landscape. This is escaped. Escaped. This is the goat that is taken out and released to die in the wilderness, bearing on his head the sins of the people. Those done or left undone, those of thought or word or deed, all gathered together and placed upon in this ceremony the head of a goat who is sent to escape into the wilderness when we ask the question why did jesus's suffering under the cur- what did Jesus' suffering under the curse of god accomplish what did his suffering can we all agree he suffered on the cross what did it accomplish What are the outcomes of that act? Is it mere modeling? It's certainly modeling, but is it mere? Is that it? Is he only modeling the way of sacrifice and love? Is he ruling over Israel in that moment? Is he only ruling? Is it just a governmental rule? No, he's satisfying the demands of the covenant. That God has made with Israel because no one in Israel can accomplish and live up under the weight of the law of God's covenant. So what did Jesus' suffering under the curse of God accomplish? Well, today we're honing in on the doctrine of divine satisfaction. That's what we're after trying to understand what divine satisfaction has to do with the cross of Christ. And pastors get real nervous about Easter sermons. And when we do, one of our outlets is to find people smarter than us, more gifted than us, and definitely more articulate than us, and quote them as much as possible. Listen to these words from R.C. Sproul. Therefore, Christ's supreme achievement on the cross is that he placated the wrath of God, which would burn against us were we not covered by the sacrifice of Christ. So if somebody argues against placation or the idea of Christ satisfying the wrath of God, be alert because the gospel is at stake. This is about the essence of salvation. That as people who are covered by the atonement, we are redeemed from the supreme danger to which any person is exposed. Remember, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God who's wrathful, but there is no wrath For those whose sins have been paid. That is what salvation is all about. RC's right, isn't he? And one of the things that we see happening if you begin to survey Christian history, if you listen to the theologians and scholars, the pastors and teachers of church history, you begin to realize that we start throwing out vocab words faster than you can take notes. For real. And so sometimes we can be stuck and limited in our understanding of what the guys are saying or the ladies are teaching about what actually happened in the plan and history of redemption. So I'm gonna give you five vocab words. Welcome to Easter Sunday. Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Here's your vocab. First, expiation. Expiation is that God removes the guilt of our sin at the cross. Again, these are getting at different dynamics of the same truth, okay? This Old Testament key of atonement, it's found in understanding it through these different facets. Think of us staring at a jewel. And it has many angles that reflect the light in different ways. This is why when someone shows you their engagement ring, your line can always be, it's so shiny or sparkly. Oh, look at it, sparkle. Yeah, I don't care if you see the sparkle. (laughs) That's the line. Because what we know about diamonds is that they reflect and bend light in such a way that it glows, it reverberates visually. So when we think about these facets, sometimes we start to throw these words together in the same teachings. And that's okay if we know what each vocab word means. If we can see the angle or the corner that that light is going to bend off of. So expiation is God removing the guilt of our sin. Propitiation, that's another four-letter word, to many of us, God satisfies his wrath at the cross. So expiation, he removes guilt. Propitiation, he is satisfying his wrath at the cross. Third, redemption. This third facet can be understood in thinking that God paid the price of our pardon. God paid the price of our pardon. Or ransom, fourth element, fourth facet. God receives payment for our sin at the cross. Now, many of these seem to overlap, yes, And in some ways, they are kind of interchangeable because they're all different signs pointing to the same substantive truth. Ransom. God receives payment for our sin. And fifth, reconciliation. God makes his enemies friends. God makes his enemies his friends. This is what every third grader on the playground wishes they had the power of, right? To turn an enemy into a friend. This is part of what God does at the cross. Now, if you want scripture for each of these, because you want to dig through and study this a little bit more, then expiation, you can see, as we will in a moment, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17 for propitiation, God satisfying his wrath, you can study that in Romans 3, 24 and 25. For redemption, my favorite place, Ephesians 1, 7. Redemption through his blood. The four-word gospel. Redemption through his blood. For ransom, The best place is Matthew 20, verse 28. You can hear Jesus with his own lips speak of ransoming his people, who are many. And fifth, reconciliation. (laughs) Just point to just about any page in the New Testament, especially the ones that Paul wrote. And you'll find the word reconciliation within a few pages, almost definitely. But reconciliation, this is God making his enemies friends. This is Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10. Didn't know you were going to get a vocab lecture today, did you? It helps, though. Words have meanings. As we know the meanings of these words, we will begin to understand the truth that they point to all the more. There's one more piece that I'm going to give you in terms of vocab or academic, and then we're going to rip this sucker from our minds deep into our hearts, I pray. Both propitiation and expiation represent the same Greek word. Now, none of you need to study Greek beyond the Lord's calling, but it is helpful for us when we understand that the English Bibles in front of us are translated from original autographs, original writings. And in those original writings, there are words that are impossible for us to translate perfectly and equally. Now, let me be very clear. We can translate them truly, even if not fully, in a single word or phrase. One of my favorite examples of this is in John 3. You guys have seen somebody hold a poster up at a sports event, John 3, 16. Well, in that same chapter where that verse is found, you will see Jesus having a conversation with one of the religious teachers, one of the Jewish leaders in Israel in his day. And Jesus says, you must be born, and then we have to make a choice, born again, like a second time, or born from above. Now the reality is you are born from above as a new birth, like a second one, right? But when we go to translate it, we don't get, unlike us Presbyterians who take our time and nuance, you can't always do that. So sometimes you have to make a choice. Are we going to do born from above, or are we going to do born again? And there are cultural reasons or, or you know, linguistic reasons why you might choose one over the other, but it is worth knowing that even in a moment as innocent and important as that conversation, that we have translation issues. So when we see this great doctrine of the atonement in the New Testament, sometimes they have to make choices about how they're going to translate these same words. Even though it's the same word in the Greek, you might get it in English in different ways. And that's okay. But the word for propitiation or expiation is hilasterion. And the great theologian and, and seminary professor A.A. A. Hodge said this. The best definition of hilasterion is to propitiate by sacrificial expiation. Thanks, Hodge. Right? Like, you're like, wait, that's the definition of defining a word within itself. That's circular definition. But what I appreciate is he goes on to write a thousand-page book explaining what that means. If you ever wonder what I do in my non-free time, I read Dead Theologians for you. You're welcome. Here's the significance. This is a concept that is so essential to our understanding that it takes definitions this sluggish to unpack. This is not fast, it's not glamorous, but it's deeply important. It's important because we're talking about what God removes from us because of Jesus on the cross. We're talking about the satisfaction of divine joy in his wrath being paid once on the cross for all time. It's the redemption of God's people. In other words, when we study the cross, we can see that God paid the price of our pardon on the cross. He ransomed us. Now, this is hilarious. How many of you have seen a movie with kidnapping in it? I'm alone up here? Or are you already asleep? You with me? To whom is a ransom paid in the movies? It's really weird, biblically, because you start thinking that that framework is true here. But it's actually the inverse. In biblical ransom, the guilty party offers payment to the innocent party. But in our movies, it's the reverse. It's the innocent loved ones who are trying to care, and they send to the guilty ones a payment in order to ransom the person back. It's a reversal of the biblical truth. So when you read ransom in the Bible, understand that it's always talking about a payment from guilty people to the innocent or wronged party. Well, that's really different. It's really different, isn't it? On a fundamental level. So when the Bible talks about ransoming, it's God receiving. Is God ever the guilty party? Let's try this again. Is God ever the guilty party? So if he's never the guilty party, then the innocent party receives payment on behalf of the guilty ones. That's me and you. And then in reconciliation, we see what it means that God makes his enemies his friends. When God sees us apart from Christ... We are by nature and birthright enemies of God. By redemption, by reconciliation, we who are alienated from God by our sin become members of his household. So propitiation is done by sacrificial expiation. You're welcome. This Greek word, hilasterion, refers to the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant. You guys familiar with some of the holy furniture in the tabernacle? And you had some in the Holy of Holies, that tiny place where once a year the high priest on the day of atonement would come and enter into the high and holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was? When we read about atonement in the New Testament, it is directly tied to the ceremonies that we find, like in Leviticus 16. In verse 15, it specifically says that he sprinkled blood on the atonement cover. But when you read your Bible, you don't read atonement cover. What do you read? Mercy seat. Mercy seat. It's the place where God sits to rule his people in power and authority and mercy. Why? Because the sins of the people are atoned for by holy blood. That's the same day, the same ceremony that we are talking about with this goat who's escaped. This atonement cover, this mercy seat in the Old Testament is always in the mind of the author of scripture when he talks about and teaches on the atonement. So again, we're taking the large concept of the atonement and we're beginning to narrow in, to hone in, to zoom in. So how are expiation and propitiation similar? I'll give you two ways. One, both of them are objective. Not subjective. They actually happen within time and space and history. There is an objective moment that accomplishes both expiation and propitiation. These two are both objective in that they are grounded in the historical event of Jesus' crucifixion. Second, Both are completely secured by Christ on the cross. So their objective being that they're grounded in the historical event of Jesus' crucifixion and they're secured by Christ alone. No human effort beyond Jesus required. That is how they're similar. So how do they differ then well, expiation gives its eye to the effect that divine satisfaction has upon a sinner. Propitiation has respect to the effect which divine satisfaction has upon God. So we're looking at the cross. We're reading about the abuses involved, the pain involved, the suffering and anguish, the horror Right, aren't we given tablespoon after tablespoon of how difficult and important this moment was? Matt led us so well earlier in praying and thinking through how on earth can Jesus have joy in such anguish? Both anticipating it and receiving it in the moment. How can he say Insane things like, Father God, forgive them. They know not what they do. How can he turn and see his mother Mary and say, My beloved John, can you look after my mom because I have to go away? He's suffering for every breath to vocally express these things that he really cares about, like his mom and us. It is essential then for us that we can begin to unpack the glorious truths that the hymn writers have given us, that the theologians have expounded upon, that the scripture has solidly, boldly, clearly communicated to us that we might understand the glory that Jesus understands as he joyfully enters into such misery for us, for our salvation. So when we think about expiation, it's focused on how God's satisfaction affects us, his people. Propitiation is thinking about the effect that his satisfaction has in himself. Can we agree that sin has a cost? And that that cost requires punishment? Every sinner in this room knows from childhood forward, when you did wrong, there's gonna be payment. Now, most of us, if we're clever or paying attention, try to delay that payment as long as possible, right? We lie, we conspire, we pretend, we ignore, we don't bring it up, we hope they don't find out even though they know the whole time. And parents, we can have mercy in those moments, yes. But one of the merciful things we can do is consistently hold a line so that they know that there's punishment involved for these kind of actions and habits. If there's no sin, then there's no deserving of punishment, then there's no grace. The doctrine of grace requires us to understand the doctrine of divine wrath. But the cross provides not just the sign that points to his wrath. It's also the substance of the reason he is satisfied in his wrath against sin and needs no more expression of wrath. Jesus, on the cross, let me stop. Are there moments in your life where you are filled with shame and you feel guilty. Rightly or wrongly, there are moments in your life where the darkness, the grayscale of life descends upon you because of what you've done, because of what others have done, it doesn't really matter. The circumstances are not the point. The moment of your experiencing that level of darkness, despair, sorrow, grief, anxiousness, whatever it is when those clouds descend and the world is no longer vibrantly colored, you can whisper to your circumstances, to the lies in your head, Jesus has taken this from me. It's not just abstract theology. When we look at the cross, we see divine judgment satisfied. We see the prisoner go free. We see the lame walk. This is why the songs should be so overflowingly joyful, not just on Easter, but on every day. And often they have a a level of progression, right? You start in sorrow and sadness, and you end with trumpets, or in this case, a euphonium. Yes, you end with a euphonium, which is like a trumpet tuba, I'm told. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the grief, when all things are heavy and hard, we can cry out in joy. Jesus paid it all. And he took it all. The goat has left the building. The goat has gone to the wilderness. Death and condemnation is what Jesus has done and taken from you all failure, all sorrow, all that would allow the clouds to descend. All the lies that we vocalize internally. The cross of Jesus Christ is essential for us because he has taken our guilt and our shame. So how do we apply a truth like this? We don't just understand it, we live it. Guilt and shame are real in the Christian life. True? Guilt and shame are real in the Christian life, but they are not absolute. They are removable. Listen to Tim Keller. He says, God removes our objective guilt so it cannot bring us into punishment. He also removes our subjective shame so we never remain in inner anguish. That's why this stuff matters. It's not just academic, it's not just intellectual. God has removed our objective guilt on the cross from 2,000 years ago so that it cannot bring us into punishment ever. So you can say to your circumstances, these are not punishment for sin because Jesus has paid for that and it removes our subjective experience of shame so that you can say, Lord, I don't really understand it. It does not make sense to my rational mind, but you say it, I will trust it. That you have placed on the head of Jesus Christ, so beautiful a salvation, so complete an atonement, that I do not live in inner anguish again. That's how it's important to us. This key Old Testament sacrifice in atonement. It is a divine covering for sin by the means of shed blood. But this also matters, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones too. Listen to B.B. Warfield talking about the future resurrection of our loved ones. Listen to Dr. Warfield. In Christ's resurrection, therefore, the Christian man sees the earnest and pledge of his own resurrection. And by it, he is enheartened as he lays away the bodies of those dear to him. Not sorrowing as the rest that have no hope. He's quoting First Thessalonians there. But with hearts swelling, with glad anticipations of the day when they shall rise to meet their Lord. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus, he will bring with him on that holy day. Amen? Final thought. Can't have Easter without quoting Dr. Bovink. Are you ready? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Amen of the Father placed upon the It is finished of the Son. The resurrection of Jesus is the Amen of the Father placed upon the It is finished of the Son. We sing about blood-bought sacrifice. We delight in the victory and triumph on the cross. But we must also be able to understand the substance of that victory. Where, when, how, and why. And your study of atonement and divine satisfaction will lead you on a path to gloriously celebrate all the new, year after year after year, what Jesus has accomplished in removing our shame from us and sending it to the land of condemnation from which it will never return. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this day for your mercy and goodness, for your power and your glory, and most of all, Lord, we confess that we need the work of your cross to transform us that we might live and love as you do. Lord, take enemies. Make them friends. Remove from us our guilt. Satisfy the demands of your just wrath pay the price of our pardon on the cross and send your spirit to apply it to our lives that we might know the glorious payment that you gave on our behalf and may we forever glory in the power, beauty, goodness of your atoning sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name we all pray, and all God's people agree.